Before we jump into the sermon today, there is some context, I think, that we need to provide for the book of Ephesians. There's a lot going on in this book, but there are also some questions that we need to kind of address before we dive into it. And so I want to tackle two important questions before we really get into the book. The first is, who wrote Ephesians, and to whom was Ephesians written? We know that in the Bible here, it's this book, but originally it was a letter, what we call an epistle. So who wrote Ephesians? Well, we kind of hold to the the belief that Paul wrote it, but there is question about that because there are some differences stylistically from some of Paul's other writing. The thought is perhaps maybe it was somebody that studied under Paul, somebody that, that worked with Paul, but we kind of hold to the view that Paul is the one who is the author of Ephesians. The second question is to whom was the letter, the epistle of Ephesians written to? Now, we would say it was probably written to the church in Ephesus, But there's thought that it was a circular letter, meaning that it was a a letter that was written to be read by various churches kind of in the area. So it's entirely possible that this book that we call Ephesians was read not only by the church in Ephesus, but also perhaps some of the churches that were kind of around in the area. So it might have been more widespread than just in Ephesus itself. So a couple things to be thinking about. Ephesus was a significant city in Asia Minor. It was a harbor city. It was a place of commerce. So it was a big, important place. It was a place that that was diverse. There were were Jews and Gentiles. There was this diversity. We also have kind of represented in Ephesus this pagan culture. We see temples and things dedicated to pagan gods and goddesses. We see this temple to Diana. We also see occult practices taking place in Ephesus. And so Ephesus really is this city that is ripe for evangelism. It is a place that needs to hear the gospel. And Paul believed this to be true. He spent a couple years in Ephesus preaching and and on mission. But also we see that he's in prison and he, he writes years later back to the church in Ephesus to communicate some very important truths. So Paul writes this letter, and while Ephesians is not necessarily the longest of the epistles, the information in here is really significant. We see things about who God is, about the church, and about our life as followers of Christ. And the book is essentially broken into two different sections. The first three chapters are about kind of this idea of the gospel story, and the last three chapters are about kind of the impact of the gospel on our lives. And so this is an important letter to the church at the time that it was written, but it certainly is still a relevant and important book for us today. If you're like me, waiting for an important letter can be really exciting. A couple months ago, I applied for a doctor of ministry program, and after I sent off my application, I'm like, man, I, I don't know when I'm going to hear back from them. And so like the next day, I'm checking my email. (laughs) I knew I wouldn't get anything, right? I mean, one day later, they're not going to make a decision that fast, but I couldn't help myself. This wasn't even a physical letter. A physical letter is even more exciting, right? How often do you get a physical letter that's not, you know, like a bill, you know, but like something encouraging. But I log into my email and I check, you know, see if there's anything in there. And I go back later in the day, refresh, there's nothing. Ah. A couple weeks go by, finally I hear back from them. And it was the news that I was hoping for, which is fantastic. If you're like me, this can be a tedious process, but it's an important process for us. 
Because in that time when we're waiting for that news, it gives us an opportunity to kind of think about what is coming, what's in store for us. I knew that if I were to receive an acceptance letter, it was going to impact my life in a significant way. I knew that there were going to be next steps that I was going to have to address, things that I was going to have to tackle and do. Well, eventually I received the the acceptance that I was looking for, and so now there's this process of reading and writing and doing all these things, even before the program starts. Here in Ephesians, we have this book of good news, of important news. It's a a letter filled with things of significance, life-impacting information. And my hope is that we end, as we enter into this process, as we study Ephesians for the next several months, that we would be open to how God wants to work in and through us as we study this text. That we would be prepared to take whatever next step it might be that God has for us as a result of our study of Scripture. And so this morning as we dive into this, I, I do want to take just a moment to pray that God would prepare our hearts and our minds for this time of study. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to study it. As we spoke about earlier, earlier, we recognize that not everyone has this opportunity, and so we thank you for the privilege to have your entire word in front of us here today, to be able to study it and to learn about you. Lord, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds to receive what it is that you want to say to us, and that we would be open and receptive to take whatever next steps you might call us to as a result of this study. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate your word for us, that we would take this seriously, and that we would grow in relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to read through the first 14 verses of chapter 1 of Ephesians. We're not going to dive into all of them, But it's this really beautiful kind of cohesive thought, and I think it makes sense for us to read through these entire 14 verses. We're going to kind of dive into the first eight verses specifically, maybe sticking our toes up to verse 10 just a little bit, but we're going to be covering those in the weeks to come. This morning, though, we are going to be reading, as I said, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and so I invite you to join me in the reading of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. What a beautiful passage. I mean, really, what a a beautiful passage. Paul begins with kind of a familiar sort of greeting. We see these greetings in, in the epistles. When a letter is written, we see some sort of introduction. In this introduction, Paul is very specific, and he makes the point of of pointing out where his authority comes from. He points out to whom the readers belong and what it is that he hopes the readers will receive from God, which is grace and peace. Grace and peace are two things that we find throughout the text of Ephesians. We're going to come back to these themes as we continue forward. But after this initial greeting, we see what is really a prayer of thanksgiving, Paul makes very clear that it is God who has so richly blessed us with what he says in verse 3 is every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so Paul is giving praise. And Paul's not giving praise to just any God. He makes clear, and I think this is important when we consider that the context of Ephesus was one that had pagan gods, occult practices. He points out very specifically that his praise is given to the God, the Father of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. There's there's no confusion about who it is that he is giving praise to. I think this is also important because it places Jesus at the center of this conversation of worship. And really, Jesus is at the center of everything that is to follow here. In fact, throughout the rest of this passage, we see some language repeated over and over again. And when we look at Scripture, when we see language repeated over and over again, it's typically pointing to something of importance, something that we need to pay attention to. And so within this text here, we come back to this idea of things happening in Christ or through Christ, in him or through him, in the beloved or through the beloved. We see this sort of language over and over again. And so if you're taking notes this morning or as we go through this this series, if you see that language, let me encourage you to circle it or underline it or make some sort of note because this is an important thing, especially today, for us to be aware of. In verses 4 through 6, we really start to get into the meat of this passage. And and Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Did you see that? In him before the creation of the world. In the one he loves, through Jesus Christ. We see these things already just in these first couple of verses. What Paul is speaking about in this passage is fundamental to our understanding of salvation. How we understand what it means to be saved is kind of being addressed and covered here in this passage. Paul's saying that, that we join the family of God not based on our works or our merit, Not based on the things that we do or how good we are, not by our actions, but directly from God in and through Christ. You see, it's God's gracious act. We see God's choosing according to his pleasure and will before the beginning of time, those whom will be redeemed. This idea of God choosing people is not new to us. We see this in Scripture, right? If we go back to the Old Testament, we see this idea with the Israelites. And God didn't choose the Israelites for their own gratification. He didn't choose them to make them feel good. 
but he chose them according to his will and purpose, to, to bless the nations. Paul is very clear that this is fully dependent upon God's actions, not ours. I had a conversation with someone recently. We were talking about church. We were talking about why people go to church, why people don't go to church, what people feel like sometimes they need to do in order to come and be accepted at church. And the thing that came up was that it seems like sometimes there's the feeling that in order to come to church, I need to have it all together. I need to be good enough to walk through those doors because Christians are supposed to have it all together. I need to be doing the right things. I need to be saying the right things. I need to be walking the right walk, so to speak, in order to show up at church, in order to be accepted into what we would call covenant community, the life of the church. I need to get my life in order so that I can do these things right. But Paul doesn't say any of that in this passage. Paul doesn't say that before the foundations of the world, God chose those that attend church every week or tithe or serve the poor or go on mission trips or tutor little children. He doesn't say any of those things. No, he says that this is the work of God in Christ. What does he mean by in Christ? On one level, I think there's kind of this this idea of relationship. This connection between God and those chosen according to his will. There's this idea of unity, being united to Christ, being united to God. And on another, Paul seems to be speaking of Christ as this medium or this instrument that God uses to bring about his action. And he seems to be speaking to our justification in Christ, of Christ taking upon himself our sin, the weight, the burden of our sin, and replacing that on our shoulders with his righteousness. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. He's talking about what happens when we place our trust and faith in Jesus as the one who died for our sins and rose from the grave. Paul says this is so we could be holy and blameless before him. It's because of Christ's death and resurrection that this is possible. But why would God do such a thing? Why would he send his one and only son, as it says in the book of John? As a part of our Good Friday service, I reflected on the last words of Christ and and wrote a poem that we used in our service. And one of the verses was this. So many questions, all with only one answer. Love. God, you are love. And out of your abundant love, you sent your one and only Son to be the answer to all our questions. You see, love is the answer. Love is why God would do such a thing. I saw this tweet yesterday from Russell Wilson, and he said, I choose to love. I thought, man, that's that's good. I want to choose to love too. We all need to choose to love. But there's this really important truth that we need to remember And the truth is this, that God first chose to love us. God first chose to love us. This was a decision, a choice that God made. I love the book of 1 John. 1 John 4 speaks to so much of this idea. Starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We even see it here, through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. See, we can love because God chose to love us. He first chose to love us. God is love. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then our passage here continues. He, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You see, it's in love that he has chosen to predestine us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. The term adoption is used in the book of Romans, and it comes from kind of Greco-Roman um, law, and it's used in reference to those who are, who are selected or adopted sons that aren't, aren't by birth. Adoption is this relational word. We're familiar with the word of adoption. In fact, we have a ministry here called FAM for foster and adoptive families where we come alongside and we support them, where we encourage them, where we invest in them. See, adoption is not something where the person is just kind of sort of viewed as a member of the family. Adoption is not something where someone, you know, just gets to go on vacation with your family because you're kind of good friends. You know, when we talk about someone being adopted, we're not talking about someone who's called brother or sister just because that's the sort of relationship that we have with them. No. Someone who is adopted is family. They are family as if they were of the same blood. They are entitled to all of the rights and privileges that are due a biological member of the family. They are heirs through God's adoption of us into sonship or, or daughtership, if you will. Jesus Christ is now our joint heir. We are joint heirs with Christ. Think about that. We are joint heirs with the Son of God. Let that sink in. You and I, in our sinful and broken nature, are joint heirs with the Son of God, with Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we, we may also be glorified with him. See, this is in accordance with his pleasure and will. I think this is maybe an important place to land for just a moment. See, God didn't adopt us because he needed to adopt us. He didn't 
reach out to us because he had to. Our adoption is not out of any sort of compulsion, but simply out of God's love and pleasure and in accordance with his sovereign and perfect will. God didn't have to call us out of our sinful and broken state. He didn't have to reach out and and touch our lives. Even though we were in such a place, such condition that we couldn't, not, not only could we not desire him, but we couldn't even pursue him because aspects of our lives, parts of our lives were so sinful. You see, sin infiltrates every part of our lives and it makes it impossible for us to pursue a relationship with Christ without his grace, gracious work in our lives, transforming our hearts, our minds, our wills. It is by God's grace alone that our hearts and minds and wills have been renewed in such a way that we can even desire a saving faith. And so all praise and glory and honor is due God and God alone for this gracious gift of adoption that he has given us in Christ the Beloved. Verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Lavished is such a great word. I mean, think of, when you think of some, something being lavished on you, it feels very luxurious, very, very wonderful and incredible. And here it is, God lavishing upon us his riches. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. While the redeeming work of Christ is transformative for us here and now, the will of God, his desire to bring things together in heaven and on earth under Christ is not new. This is not something new. This is something that has been at work for centuries. This is the work that he was doing in and through the Israelites. And this really is this underlining story that Paul is speaking to. See, God chose Abraham and his line to bear the truth of who God is and to to be a part of this plan for redemption. If we go back to verse 4, Paul says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He's talking about the Israelites, the Jewish people, but he's also talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about you and me those whom he has called. And he's talking about the fulfillment of this plan that he set in motion with the Israelite people. And how did he do this? He did it in him. He did this in Christ. Verse 7 again says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This isn't the first time that God use blood to save his people, is it? Think of the Passover and, and the blood on the doorposts. And here again, we see God's saving grace through the shedding of blood, the shedding of the Lamb of God's blood. God chose the Israelites in accordance with his good and sovereign will and purpose, a will desiring to bring about restoration and renewal, a will desiring to bring about a adoption and redemption to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth 
under Christ. I think it's understandable that oftentimes when we think about God's will, we get so caught up in in God's will for me. We have this small kind of myopic view of God's will, and we only think about it in terms of the context that we're in with our small little sphere of influence with the circumstances that we are dealing with on a daily basis. And yet God's will is so much larger, so much grander. It's so much more vast. And we don't understand all of the ins and outs of how and why God works as he does. But scripture speaks to his love and grace and good pleasure as that which forms the foundation of the work that he is doing in and through Christ. Before Monica and I had kids, we did some some cycling. We like to ride our bikes. And some friends invited us to ride the Seattle to Portland bike ride with them, the STP. This is a 200-mile bike ride that starts at the University of Washington and rides all the way down to downtown Portland. It's a long ride. So we put in time training and, and getting ready for this. But I remember the morning of the race. We showed up at the University of Washington. We had our bikes, and we were in our spandex, and we were ready to go. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I hope that I've trained enough. I hope that my legs are strong enough. I hope that I have the stamina and the endurance. I hope that this is all in me. I hope I can do it. There are people that ride this in one day. We were doing it in two days, but that still meant 100 miles a day. And after that first day, you had to get back on the saddle again. And let me tell you, that is not a pleasant experience. (laughs) But I was hoping that this was in me. I was hoping that I had what it took to ride those 100 miles that first day and to ride that second 100 miles the second day. I think this is a question we often ask ourselves when it comes to things of significance. We ask ourselves this question, do I have it in me? Do I have it in me? The thing is, though, when it comes to all the things that we've talked about today, you don't have it in you. The things that we've talked about today, you don't have it in you. It's not in you. You do not have it in you. I do not have it in me. You can act like it's in you. You can pretend like it's in you. You can talk like it's in you, but it is not in you. True restoration and renewal, ultimate satisfaction and joy, real fulfillment and peace, you and I cannot create these things. We cannot create these things. And moreover, there is nothing that you can do to bring about or earn or deserve redemption from your sinful and broken state. I know that at first blush, this is really discouraging sounding, isn't it? It's a depressing sort of idea. We want to be able to do things. We want to take things, you know, under our control and use our our minds and our power and our force and our will to accomplish things. That's really what society tells us to do. That's what all the self-help books tell you to do. And so this sounds like kind of a downer. And if you came to church today looking for an attaboy or attagirl, you've got this. This is not that message. 
It's not. Because you do not have it in you. But the reality is, this news that I shared with you today is the best news there is. There is no better news. Because you don't have to have it in you. You don't have to have it in you because it is in him. It is in him. You don't have to be good enough or strong enough. You don't have to have it all together because it is in him. Restoration, renewal, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment, peace, and ultimately salvation is in him. Because of God's gracious work in our lives, we can put our faith in him and experience all that there is as adopted sons and daughters in Christ. As joint, joint heirs with Christ. Think about that. You and I, fallen, broken, sinful people, as joint heirs with the Son of God. Because it's in him. That is good news. That is a beautiful thing. That is the gospel. I hope that that is encouraging to you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we don't have to have it all together. That we don't have to make all the right choices in order to walk through the doors of this church on a Sunday morning. That we don't have to put on a show in order for you to love us. That we don't have to make all the right choices to be forgiven. Lord, you are a good and gracious God. And while we certainly don't understand everything about you, what we do know is that you are loving. Not only are you loving, but you are love. And in you, we find rest and peace, find hope and joy. Lord God, on those days when we feel tired, And weary. In you we find our rest. Because we are your chosen sons and daughters. We are adopted into your family. We're not just kind of sort of close friends, but we are your sons and your daughters. With full rights and privileges as heirs. Lord God, I pray today that we would Stop putting on a show for you. Lord, we don't need to impress you because quite honestly, there's nothing that we can do that is impressive enough. But Lord, what we can do is humbly turn our lives over to you. We can acknowledge that in our weakness, you are strong. We can allow you to work in our hearts and our minds, that you can transform our wills that you can reach into all those deep, dark, scary places of our lives and graciously bring about renewed hearts and minds that desire to put our faith and our trust in you. Lord, I thank you for today and I thank you for this family, this opportunity to come together to worship you. The one true God, 
who by your grace sent your son to the cross so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, so that we could be counted as righteous. Lord God, we love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.